Geraldine Jameson interview, brought to you by Tinwald Mills St. John's. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's programme. Now, over 25 years of presenting this weekly slot, I have met numerous, sometimes very famous authors, and of course reviewed their latest literary works. The list is almost endless, but I can honestly say, hand on heart, it is a long time since I eagerly read every word, laughed out loud, and thoroughly enjoyed an important new book just published and launched on the Isle of Man later this week in the company of theatrical legends Prunella Scales and Timothy West. The author of Saving the Gaiety and Other Misadventures of a Theatre Manager is my guest today, Mervyn Stokes, MBE. Congratulations, what a tour de force you've managed to pull off, Mervyn. Well, thank you very much, Geraldine. Um, I had enormous fun writing it, and, and I hope people have enormous fun reading it. Uh, they, they, they certainly will. Now, of course, it is a priceless record of a triumphant exercise in preservation, but it is your personal and oh-so-entertaining memories of your front-of-house duties. <laughs> Let me list a few. From a royal visit coinciding with an unusually high sea that alarmingly reversed the action of the plumbing in the public lavatories, <laughs> to the theatrically adventurous bishop who explored below stage and was caught in the demon trap, the great Irish leg pool, Tony's last request, sleepless in Wakefield, barefoot in the dark... And so, so much more. You have such a naturally droll style of writing and you bring the reader along every delightful step of the way. Obviously a labour of love, but uh, when did this dream become reality or why? It really happened almost by mistake, as indeed most things in my life do. Um, What happened was on the 7th of October in 2002, the Gaiety Theatre was listed. It's never been listed before, and um, it became a listed Manx building. Now, part of the, the listing, the requirement of a listing, is that a proper record is made of the building. And so uh, the listing committee appointed Michael Thompson, um, our well-known local photographer, to actually spend 18 months with me in the Gaiety photographing everything exhaustively. And the idea being that, heaven forbid, there's an accident with the gaiety, um, there is a a record of everything there so that it could be put back if that is the desire of of the Isle of Man. Um, As I said, this took 18 months, and at the end of the period, when all the photographs were printed and collated and put in um, four enormous volumes, um, they were presented to me to look at. And Michael and I sat down and we, we went through them. And at the end, we both looked at each other and said, do you know what a waste all this has been? Because they're going to end up um, sitting in a dusty archive somewhere and no one's going to see them. What an enormous waste. There is a book in this. And so really from that very lighthearted sort of beginning, we progressed it. And although all the photographs aren't in the, uh, in, in the Saving the Gaiety, um, a good percentage are. And so the book really is, is, has got two sort of points, really. It's A, it's my story, and, and B, of course, it is the, the, the record. And it says to people, Isle of Man, this is it. This is how it must remain because it's unique. If you see anybody tampering with it, for 
goodness sake, say something. You know, I should be gone in a couple of years' time and I, I won't be able to, <laughs> apart from jumping up and down from the sidelines. Um, this is it. You must be the guardian of the gaiety theatre. So that's really the important part of the book. But uh, the fun part is, is, is my bit. And, and Well, as you say, rightly say, it is your autobiography, really, Mervyn. And, and you mentioned about um, perhaps graves. You've entitled the first chapter, actually, From Grave Beginnings to a Brave New World. And um, you bring in... Ernie and Eric from Morecambe, but not Morecambe, actually, Peterborough. Peterborough, yes. Um, I mean, how it came about, Ernie Wise lived in Peterborough. My mother went to school with Ernie's wife, and so they, they were buddies. And so I sort of grew up knowing Ernie quite well, really. And so because they did all their sort of publicising of Peterborough and they were, or he was certainly Peterborough and, and Peterborough became the sort of the, the butt of their, their humour on many occasions, I thought that would be a nice little thing to, to hang on to. And so they actually run through the book in a very sort of, you know, light way, really. So we're establishing that you're not Manx. No, no, I came to the Isle of Man in, in 19... Oh, I saw it in 1969, in September 69, fell madly in love with it. And um, from there, we sort of set about buying a house and, and, and moving here. And that was that. that, was uh, that. One of your sort of temporary jobs, shall we put it, well, when you were just sort of, you know, wondering whereabouts life would lead you, really. Um, you were a mortician's assistant, of all things. I was, yes, yes. That came about in a rather a strange way. I was parked off to, uh, to become a teacher. I, I went to St Paul's in Cheltenham and um, got my qualifications to teach. And uh, I came home after graduation and my dear papa stood there as sort of all paterfamilias do, you know, leaning against the uh, fireplace with a glass in his hand and saying, well, my boy, you've arrived, you have a job for life. And I said, actually, father, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> the result was catastrophic, you know. Um, he went ballistic and, and he said, well, child, what are you going to do and make it quick because you've had the last meal in this house. So I thought, I haven't got a clue what I want to do. Um, I know, I'll shock him. I said, I want to be an undertaker, Father. He said, then be one and be it damn quick. So I thought, right, I will. And the next day saw me taken on by the co-op funeral service. <laughs> uh, and that was it. But of course, it was doomed from the beginning because I'm a born giggler. I, don't, I just don't have the sort of pure <laughs> face required for such a... Such important things. Well, certainly humour comes through every step of this book, I must say. But uh, the Crescent Cinema now, that's what really where you sort of took off. And there's a wonderful story involving, you would, you would think now that this was, you know, cleaner than, than white, really, but it isn't actually, <laughs> involving Snow White and the, and the Seven Dwarfs. Two ladies. Yes, that was very sad, really. Those the, were the days yes. when they had midnight um, showings of films. Yeah, defunct now, the midnight match, and I think virtually everywhere. And it was in the days when, when we used to do them, so dreadful films like Let's Have a Gang Bang and The Life of a Double Bed and all sorts of things like that. And I was standing in the foyer, and this enormous queue was snaking around the building. And amongst all the late-night revellers were, were two charming old feathery ladies you know they looked as though they'd come out of arsenic and old lace or something and um i said to the commissioner i said tom do you think they really they really mean to be there and he said oh they must know their their mind they're old enough and so in they went you see and about half an hour later they suddenly returned and they were all very confused and flustered and they said we want our money back and i said well no 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 you know and they said but but it's only when we discovered that the young lady who we thought was Snow White was doing something very wicked with one of the dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> we realised we'd got the wrong film. And um, 
of course, the commissioner was in hysterics, you know, behind their back, and uh, I've, uh, you know, should have, you know, should have listened to me written all over his face, and uh, so one just had to give them the money back. I mean, yeah. it's incredible, really. What, what what people do? They were so confused, poor things, mm-hmm. genuinely so. I mean, it wasn't a, a, a put up at all. But well, while uh, you were at the Crescent Cinema, you were working sort of part time in the gaiety, and you really felt that you had made it in life on the day that you became the manager of the Gaiety Theatre. Oh, yes, that was the big day. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's a marvellous building. But, of course, when I went there, I hadn't got a clue about it. I hadn't got a clue it was a Frank Matcham. I hadn't got a clue who Frank Matcham was. So, really, the love of the building and the restoration of the building grew slowly over the years. Um, and that was greatly helped, of course, by meeting... David Bullmore. Um, From Theatre Research. Theatre Research. He, he is a, a, um, an expert on Victorian theatre. And He's worked right across the continent, hasn't he? He has, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Isle of Man's been very lucky. We've had his services for virtually nothing. And um, I suppose as a result, you know, a great friendship has, has grown up between us. He has helped us and, and, and advised, and especially on the stage machinery side, on which he is a Without a doubt now, authority. though, it's something that the Manx Nation can be so proud of because it is the finest Frank Matcham theatre and virtually restored to what it was in the 19, 1900 when it began. I think this is the important point. It, it is, in its present state, uh, as it was in 1900, to all, all intents and purposes. Um, it is... Um, you can only speak of the gaiety in superlatives. It, it has all its original equipment. It has all its original light fittings. It's now had its carpets and its wallpapers and its curtains restored as they were. And uh, out of the 230-odd theatres that Matcham built, only 28 remain. And of the 28, it is at the top of the tree. It's, it's, it's at the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. Um, the Theatre's Trust regards it as the finest Matcham theatre and the finest restoration. So I think the island has a great deal to be proud of. Another thing about Frank Matcham was that he always brought whatever theatre he was building in on time and and within budget. He was renowned for this. Um, there were other major Victorian theatre architects, people like Bertie Crewe and, and Milburn, but uh, Matcham was the man to go for. He could look at any site, he could produce a theatre on any, any irregular site, uh, on budget and to time, and he could produce any theatre that, that you wanted in regards to either a playhouse or a variety house or a, a circus theatre. Um, he could do it. Well, and of course, there were playhouses and operas, opera houses. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, they... Um, he, he was an absolute miracle. He, really now, he believed in, in sight lines. He was very forward thinking, really, this sight lines so that everybody in the theatre could see the stage. And he wanted the ordinary public to be able to go in but feel that they were in, in somewhere exotic. And that's why there were so many opulent gold and... Yeah, they, they, they were really the forerunner of the dream palaces, the cinemas that, you know, looked like Moorish temples or, or like our own Crescent Cinema. You know, it was a, a, Tudor, a, Tudor, a Tudor banqueting hall with all the hammer beam roof and the oak beams and the, the portcullis for a safety curtain. There was something so, ro- wrong about, something odd about the curtain there, though, wasn't there? Oh, the house curtains, yes, they had a mind of their own. The wretched things used to close of their own accord, usually doing the most exciting bit. You know, um, Tex Ritter was roaring over the hill, the Indians were following him, and all of a sudden the curtain would come down. And, of course, the audience would, would, would erupt in banging of feet and clapping and whistling. And then, you know, and, of course, you could, you could open the game, but on occasions even that failed, and you had to rush down and turn a little handle at the side of the screen. And you sort of turned furiously, and about t- ten minutes of furious mm-hmm. turning, which you were absolutely wrecked, 
effect resulted in the curtain opening about two inches. It was <laughs> it was a nightmare, but great fun. I'm sure it added to the enjoyment of your <laughs> of those customers so long ago. Um, one of your one of the chapters in your book we have to I, I just mentioned at the top of the program that you must you must go into details on this the royal flush, and <laughs> this was in the presence of Her Royal Highness Princess Anne no less. This was very We're going back a few years. Oh, we're going right back to the beginning. In fact, my first, it would be in my first year, mm-hmm. in, in, indeed. So John Paul was governor. So John Paul was governor. And uh, it happened just at the, the time when somebody had touched the Queen. Do you remember? Oh, uh, yes, somewhere in, down in, in New Zealand, was New it? Zealand or somewhere. And we were told, under no circumstances do you touch HRH. So having got that sort of stuck in my mind, I was told to wait and greet her at the circle door. So there I was, and up came the the royal party with the governor, and I was introduced. Um, And that all went well. And then a thought suddenly said in my little mind, heck, do I precede her through the door, or does she precede me and I follow? And we both looked at each other, and there was a sort of, all of a sudden there was a sort of an unspoken signal, and we both moved together, Never mind touching her. I mean, we were stuck in the door frame. The freezer got bent, and <laughs> she she really was most unamused. And I think the she royal had, phrase "We are not amused." We are not. It came to mind very, 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 very much so. And um, she sort of marched off in the wrong direction to the box, and I had to round her up. But um, that wasn't the worst. I mean, later on that night, the, the, the wretched lose went wrong. It was a terrible gale. Um, a terrible, there was an inshore gale and there was a, there was a, a downpour of, of rain, torrential rain. And of course, the water couldn't get off the island into the sea because it was pushing against it. What we don't realise is that the gaiety is the lowest at the lowest level along that whole promenade. It is more or less right at the bottom because all the loos, of course, are down in the cellar. And of course, it all just backed up. And I mean, it was just like Trafalgar Square fountains down there. And and I mean, water was sort of shooting about four feet into the air out of all the, the pedestals. Um, and with it came all sorts of dreadful, unmentionable things, which we won't talk about here. And I just had this dreadful vision. I mean, what do I do? She was very unamused. And if you want to go to the loo, it would be impossible. So <laughs> anyway, the water drained away very quickly. And we had to get to work on sort of cleaning this dreadful mess, which which we did. And in 20 minutes, it was all, all beautiful again. But uh, Just in time for the interval. Oh, just in time for the interval. Mm. But unfortunately, she didn't want to go to the loo, so we were OK. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the restoration, I mean, you do need luck in life. And you'd been wondering, you know, about, I think it was the original wallpaper, and you found a little piece of material stuck in a door frame. We have been so lucky, Geraldine, you know, um, so very lucky. We had, we knew what the wallpaper looked like because we had a photograph of 1900s on the opening night. Um, So we knew the pattern, but of course we didn't know the colourway. And we knew the pattern for 15 years or more before we actually found this minute scrap of paper. It was no more than about a quarter of an inch long and and half an inch wide, um, stuck behind a door architrave. And the door had gone wrong, or the hinges had gone wrong, and the architrave was taken off. And I was just passing, just that moment he took it off, and there it was, this little bit of paper which said, I'm the original wallpaper and this is the original colour. And so from that, it only took us about two months to get the wallpaper made and put on the wall. Down the years of this restoration, you did get in a lot of experts, or you went to a lot of experts, didn't you, for assistance? Yes, we did. We asked all the way down because I didn't want at the end of the day to get something wrong. And it's so easy to get things wrong if you don't do the groundwork. 
And of course, the groundwork was done thoroughly. I mean, everything was scraped back to bare plaster and bare wood to find original colours. And so I think we can say with our hand on a heart, the gaiety is actually right. What about, um, it's got wonderful um, traps, hasn't it? In fact, the, the Corsican brothers and so on, that comes to mind with those traps. But uh, the story behind behind uh, the bishop, who, who, who was obviously <laughs> terribly uh, keen on theatrical <clears throat> things, but uh, was caught literally in the demon trap. He was. This was Noel Jones, of course, and he came down with Joyce one day <clears throat> and was rooting around under there, and he said, oh, I'd like to go and go on the trap. And it was late, and we didn't have time to re-weight re, um, it. And so we popped, popped Noel on and struggled and puffed and heaved and up he shot. But of course he was heavier than the actual counterweight, so he got stuck halfway through the stage. Um, I mean, that was all right, but um, the problem was, of course, we had two little girls at the back of the theatre on work experience. And somebody had told them the theatre was haunted. And so the sight of this gloomy stage and suddenly half a purple bishop appearing, <laughs> clutching his pectoral cross, shouting, Oh my God, help! <laughs> <laughs> didn't go down terribly well. <clears throat> and there was a squawk, and, and they, they, they were gone, and we had to chase them down the prom and reassure them that, in fact, he was... Uh, alive you know, and well. Alive and well, and not uh, all that spiritual in that sense of the word. You know, kicking rather forcefully. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they were terrified, bless them. But, uh, I suppose every respectable theatre <laughs> must um, have a ghost. Does our gaiety? Yes, it does. Um, the gaiety, in my view, is riddled with them. But it's something we don't talk about very often, as I've said in the book. Um, it's a private thing. Most of us, not all of us, but most of them have uh, experienced strange things in the gaiety. I mean, over the best part of 40 years now, I've experienced some very strange things that have no explanation. Human remains? Ah, yes, but they weren't ghostly. No, no, they were very... Um, they were they were very tangible. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe their spirits like <laughs> to remain. <laughs> but um, it's nice to have them around, and um, they never they've never worried me particularly. So uh, rather a nice touch, I thought, but somewhat emotional, really. The chapter entitled Tony's Last uh, Request. Dear dear old Tony Mack. Yes, he was he was a great guy, of course. Um, He'd worked he was, for so long with the gaiety, hadn't he? He had. He was, he was stage manager and everything else. This was at the beginning, of course, when the theatre staff was, was minute. And uh, Tony, Tony eventually died. He, he was very ill. But he wanted to die in the gaiety. And I said, well, let's, let's try and make that happen for you. But sadly, it didn't because he became so ill he had to go into, uh, into care. But uh, yes, he, had these, he planned this marvellous funeral for himself in which he told... A lot of people a little about it, but nobody knew the whole story. And my part was to make sure the flags came down to half-mast on the top of the theatre when the cortege stopped outside briefly on its way to the crematorium. But when we got back, in fact, he, um, he had left a little bit of himself to me in the form of a couple of bones out of his hand or wrist with instructions they were to be buried in the theatre. And so I did that for him on the night of his funeral and... Uh, and there they remain, but I've never told anybody where they are, nor will I, it's between the pair of us. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I regret to say, because it goes against myself, coming from, of course, those this part of the world, the um, Irish leg pool, well, that is one of the funniest chapters in your book. <laughs> well, this poor guy, he, 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 he was wonderful, really. He, it was a very busy night in the summer, and he came in. And uh, he said, oh, he said, excuse me, sir, he said, uh, would you be having, he said, a, um, a reduced ticket for a poor old Irishman? And I looked at him and I said, well, I'm sorry, mate. I said, you, you, you don't qualify, really. You're not old enough to be a pensioner. And you're certainly not young enough to be a child. 
And intrigued, I said, why? He said, well, it's on account of me having the wooden leg. And I said, yes. He said, um, you see, 100% of me can't be enjoying the show, can it? I thought, good point, good point. <laughs> so I'll play along with this. So I, I got hold of a tape measure and I measured him roughly, inside leg and all the rest of it, and went back and did a quick calculation on the, you know, abacus it was in those days. We didn't have things like um, calculators. And I said, Look, I, I, I calculate your body mass, the body mass of your leg to be about 15% of your whole body. So I said, I'll reduce your ticket by 15%. So this is what I did. Gave me his ticket, he turned to go. And I said, ah, just hang on. I said, leading up the box office, the usherettes will give you a hand in. And he said, uh, no, 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 I can walk all right. I said, no, no, sir, you don't understand. You haven't paid for the leg. Ergo, you'll have to unscrew it, leave it with me in the box office and collect it after the show. Well... His sense of humour deserted him at this point. He was exceedingly offensive and stomped off on two perfectly good legs. I knew all along, because <laughs> when I was measuring, I sort of realised yeah. it wasn't wood at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we gave the, 50, the, the, the ticket money to the guide dogs for the blind. <laughs> A Queen Victoria has performed on the Gaiety stage? Mm, she has, bless her. Yes, she was a slightly eccentric lady who I think thought she was Queen Victoria. She she arrived here, and when I went to pick her up, there she was, Queen Victoria. Dressed uh, as? Beautiful, beautiful black water silk dress, the, the uh, proper yes. garter insignia, and then the little crown that you see in all these winter halter portraits, so little, that little wee crown on the top. And she honestly believed she was. And she arrived at the theatre, and she went on stage, and <laughs> she opened her mouth to sing, and it was so flat. I'm sure a lot of people remember this. It was absolutely dire. And the audience was trying not to laugh. They sort of had handkerchiefs stuck in their mouths and they were under the seats. And in the interval, people kept coming up saying, what's, what's the matter? Is she ill? Is it, is, it a, is it comedy? Is it a wind-up? You know, I said, no, 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 she's fine. And with absolute ease, I lied and said, Queen Victoria had a dreadful voice when she got going. Second half would be absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and on she came again. And she opened up. It was even worse than before. I mean, her voice was so flat, you could have fanned herself with it. Yeah. It was dreadful. And um, and people, I thought, I'm going to be lynched. So yeah. I stood on the pavement so I could make a quick getaway as people came out. But quite the reverse, people loved it. <laughs> they said it's a, it was so dreadful, it's the best thing we've had seen It's almost like ages. pantomime. Absolutely awful. And she, she left the following day yeah. on, on the steam packet, I think, convincing herself it was the Royal Yacht. Yeah. She was totally barking. Finally, Sir John Mills... He he came on stage, he was in a wheelchair and so on, but got out of the wheelchair to come on stage, but he got confused with his slides. But what a gentleman. He was a marvellous man. I mean, I saw him the night before in the Sefton and I thought, this show's not going to happen because he was a, you know, he was shaking, sort of pulls in, and just like a very elderly gentleman. And we got him into the gaiety and it was, not being disrespectful, it was like an old horse smelling the hay. He sort of smelt the theatre and sort of got straight out of his chair and abandoned it and and marched on and did this wonderful show. But yes, he did. He got his slides in the wrong order. We were showing them uh, on the screen as he had given them to us. But um, um, sadly, the commentary got out of sync with the, the pictures. And he realised this and he stopped. And, he's, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, I'm an old man, he said, and I'm getting old and I get confused. And he said, um, these guys are doing the best they can, but, you know, it's, it's my fault entirely. This mess up, I'm going to sort it out. 
and give them the slides in the right order. He came off and did that. And I thought, you know, not many would do that. Yeah. They really they really wouldn't. Then he came off stage, sat in his wheelchair and reverted to an old gentleman again. Yeah. But, but marvellous. Never forget that. No, it was a, it was a great evening. You've was, seen so much life there in that, in that theatre, haven't you? Over the years, quite a lot. Mm. Yes, quite quite a lot. Completely <laughs> unprintable, so a lot of it's not in the book. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to beg you that you you will produce a sequel because you must have <laughs> a lot more stories that are not written in well, this I, book. Well, I've been talking to the publishers and I said, you know, what a pity I didn't have more pages because there's so much more. Yeah. There, there, there's a whole wealth of... of, of um, Silly stories, you know. It is. It is. It's. It's really written in in the, the style of James Herriot. You know, it shouldn't happen yeah. to a vet. It's just all these silly little things over the years, which when they happen, you just sort of laugh them off and forget about them. But later on, you think about them, and they are funny. Yes, but well, there's so much humour, but there's also sadness as well. I mean, sadness that goes, you know, with 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 that theatrical experience. That's what it's about in getting that rapport across the boards to a live audience. It doesn't come across from the little box in the corner, does it? No, no. It's, it's, I think live theatre is, is very special. Um, it is a one-off experience. Every performance is different. I mean, the show might run for a week, but every night is different. The actors will react in a different way to the audience and the audience to the actors. Uh, and the whole thing is a completely new and unique experience. And that is what's so important in retaining the Gaiety Theatre as a live theatre for the Isle of Man because so many towns have lost them. Exactly. Well, the final curtain in your book falls on their memorable signature tune of Eric and Ernie, Morecambe and Wise, of course, Bring Me Sunshine. And you state, if it was good enough for Eric and Ernie, the sentiment is definitely good enough for you. Saving the Gaiety and Other Misadventures of a Theatre Manager, published this week, it'll be in all our bookshops. It definitely is a must-read. Warmest congratulations and thank you so much, Mervyn Stokes, MBE, for joining me on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. Thank you, Geraldine. The Mill Shop, Tinwald Mills. Now open Sundays, 2 till 5 pm. Take a fresh look at Tinwald Mills, St John's. <laughs>